Okay, Pasa Mufasa Ni Hao. Salam Aleikum. Shalom Habibis. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. I'm coming to you live from Paris right now, and I am here to see Bjork tonight. One of the most iconic artists of all time. Enchanté, oui, oui, oui. Having a great time here, about to take off from Mumbai tomorrow. On my way to speak at the first mushroom festival in India, Shroom Saba. Shout out Nuvedo, N-U-V-E-D-O. Mushrooms, doing big things out there in India. Gonna link up with them shortly. But in the interim, today I have a special treat for you. I'm gonna go ahead and say on the record that this is the best podcast that I've ever done. And that's because the guest is Rod Siraj, technologist, psychedelic medicine advocate, and angel investor. Also a good friend of mine. This conversation spans a tremendous amount of ground in a relatively compact time frame. And it's the exact type of conversation that I started this podcast to have. This is Rod's second time on the podcast. And I was just a guest on his, The Minority Trip Report. All right, I've got to go eat some escargot and sip a little espresso at the bistro now. This episode is brought to you by Microboost, M-Y-C-R-O-B-O-O-S-T. Functional Mushrooms, official brand partner of the Mycopreneur podcast. Tap in and order some Microboost mushroom coffee right now. You'll see what I mean. This episode is also brought to you by Inoculate the World, your one-stop shop for mycology supplies and the industry standard for clean, viable, and reliable spores. Mushroom spores. And please consider rating and reviewing the podcast. I'm serious now. Super helpful to get discovered by new listeners. And let's get this show on the road. Okay, Pasa Mufasa Nihao. Salam Aleikum. What's up? We've got Rod Siraj back on the podcast, the host of the Minority Trip podcast and the founder of Mission Club. What's up, Rod? Great to see you again. How are you doing today? Dennis, such a pleasure to be here. Big fan and just so glad to be here again. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Last month we were both in Denver together and I made it out to the portal party that Mission Club was one of the sponsors of. And even given all the insane amount of crazy weather that happened that ultimately forced the headlining artist Bonobo to cancel, I got to say it was an extraordinary event. I was highly impressed. And I don't even think half the people noticed that Bonobo canceled because we were having such a good time just connecting with each other and building relationships, networking, great DJs and dancing. What was your perception and your experience of that event in Denver last month? Thanks, guys. Really appreciate that. Certainly wasn't ideal in, in, in sort of the experience that a lot of people had. And unfortunately, a lot of people still couldn't get in. Or understandably, they gave up after being in line and being battered by hail for an hour. The security situation wasn't great. But, you know, to be honest, even though we were very, very happy to be uh, a network partner and a supporter of uh, Portal, all credit goes to Brandon DeRoche at Propeller and their team for sticking through all the insanity. I, you know, <laughs> I remember going to the fourth floor and meeting Brandon. And for, for those who don't know, for your audience, Brandon DeRoche is, is the founder of Propeller and it's the Portal is the psychedelics mental health focus chapter for Propeller. I met him and he was just like, his blood was drained out of his, you know, out of his face the moment Bonobo, after having attempted four times to make it to Denver, finally around 11.30 or so, his team said, we're just not gonna do it because they weren't even allowed to fly. So, you know, it was very hard, but you know, we were just immensely proud to be a partner supporter a little bit of background, Brandon and I met about a year and a half ago. Uh, Propeller, which is an amazing social impact 
campaign sort of platform that partners with the biggest artists in the world, identified psychedelics and mental health as the next social impact uh, pillar for them. Brandon reached out to me and we became friends really fast. And I was just really happy to be on board and supporting. We reached out to Mission Club and me before this got started, saying, hey, we're planning this big, crazy thing for Denver. And we could, Dennis, you and I can, you know, you being an artist and a creator in this, we can talk about perhaps the lack of real art in this space, ironically in psychedelics, which you think is full of art and stuff. Brandon came up with this crazy idea. We said, hey, we'll support, connect you however we can. He was sort of new to the ecosystem at that time, offered all the assistance and the help we could, pushed tickets, brought other partners on board, psychedelic puppet show, which you and I are involved in, pulled them in, and it just ended up being a beautiful experience. But in all fairness, the credit goes to Portal, Brandon, and his team. But, you know, we'll, t- we'll take whatever credit we could get because it was a fantastic party. <laughs> totally. I was really impressed. Congrats on that. Even with all the weather was insane for anybody who was not there at the conference that particular night. The hail was unlike anything I've ever seen before. And it actually forced like 90 people to be hospitalized who were at Red Rocks, the concert venue. That's how intense the hail was. So it wasn't exactly like it was just a normal storm. It was something very over the top and I remember still having a great night and I was you know dry inside and chatting with a lot of people so anyways you've been to a number of these conferences now I think we first connected at Wonderland in Miami which is another mega convention you know thousands of people psychedelic science what do you get out of these conferences I'm curious you know I think that I, I constantly am advocating for people to try to make it out to find a way out because you get what you're looking for generally. You know, some people are looking for investment partners. Some people are looking just to get connected to the space. Some people are looking, like myself, to create content, right? What are you looking to get out of these events? And after the conference, how do you keep that momentum going and keep those relationships going? That's a great question. So I think the first way to answer that question would be to appreciate, in my perspective at least, that we are not an industry yet. People want to say it's industry. We're not industry at I often joke at best, we're a loose association of people doing cool things at the same time. Industry, first of all, it's not legal. Second of all, too much red tape bureaucracy. Third of all, a very loosely connected ecosystem where it's hard to collaborate or transact or at least create, you know, get these opportunities of the grant very rapidly, which once it's an industry, it will be easier. The reason I say that is that just being there is really important because for an industry to happen, Again, I'm talking about the ecosystem at large. Maybe I shouldn't say industry, but let's say ecosystem, right? However you choose to play in this space, underground, overground, business, advocacy, not-for-profit, solo practitioner, whatever that is. We are, there's a lot of challenges and problems and questions that we don't have the answer to. So we're going to need not only money, we're going to need talent, we're going to need conviction, passion, all of this to actually build the space which addresses problems, also creates opportunities for everyone. Because it's not a cohesive ecosystem, everyone needs to participate, build those relationships, which will lead to opportunities. You know, I, I, at this point, yes, while I'm looking to go meet investors, I'm looking to meet founders, there's a significant part of my uh, mindset going in that is completely open to flow. And it's an overused word, but it really is that sort of random encounters like you and I connected online on Instagram because you posted some content about a second day satire show. And then we finally met in Wonderland. You know, I'm very happy to say you're a friend of friends, at least to me, um, and in your orbit, which is, you know, amazing. But we were able to solidify this relationship by meeting in person, which sort of further proved opportunities and so on. I'm, you know, I'm thankful to be 
on the podcast a second time. But really, I tell people, whether you're looking for an opportunity to invest, whether you're starting a company, whether you're looking for a gig or an opportunity to get involved, participate, show up. You never know who you're going to meet. And the importance of this is we're actually building an ecosystem, which will ultimately offer, offer the opportunities for livelihoods, jobs, and so on, whatever your you know, vested interest is in this space. A hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. A friend of mine calls it belly to belly, like get belly to belly with people. Look them in the eyes, get in front of them, get in the same room with them. There's really no substitute for that. And there's no shortage of opportunities either. And I am a firm advocate that there are ways to hack the system if they're too expensive. Because yes, the conferences can get expensive. There's always, virtually always, an opportunity to volunteer, to you know, apply for a press pass, which is kind of how I first started getting involved with conferences. And I've written about that as well, so people can check that out or DM me if you have any questions. I think it's paramount that whatever, again, your, your vested interest is or interest is, to build trust. This trust is currency in this space, perhaps more than any other place because there's so much stigma and misunderstanding or misconception. And because we're literally building this space over ground, at least for now. And there's a lot of, for the, for unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of flag planting, a lot of finger pointing. I think it's really important to establish yourself as some, you know, with trust as transparency. And that is, can only be done in a real way in person, online helps. But my, my whole um, motto is affinity online, proximity offline. So how do you actually use that to build the trust you need? You know, a friend of, a mutual friend of ours probably told me that a journalist or a CEO or a, an angel investor typically will get 100 plus emails a day they open the emails from the people they know. And that's why you got to build rapport and you got to build trust so that you send a message to someone, you have a proposition or whatever, they open it because they can put a face to your name. It's not a cold outreach, right? So that's huge. Now you occupy a highly sought after position among many hats that you wear in the psychedelic ecosystem and beyond. One of them is angel investor or seed investor. And of course, there's a tremendous amount of people out there who have viable projects or you know, prospectively viable projects I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how you do your due diligence, which is such a huge thing when you're an investor, right? Is uh, you're not in the business necessarily of like taking long shot risks most of the time. Can you describe a little bit about the due diligence process that you do? Great question, Dad. <laughs> One of the reasons I love you is that you actually have a very wide understanding of the space. So I have a lot of respect for that. So it's important to understand that the kind of the stage that I'm investing in is very different from an investor who may come further down the line as a company develops and matures, has revenues and has you know a bigger team and so on. So important, even though the term investor is sort of like an umbrella term, there are various profiles of investors as they come on to a company's you know, a stage of growth or whatever, um, sort of like a company's journey. Where I come in is in the seed stage, which means that the company has a tangible product, has a team, has some traction, whether the traction is potential dollars in the pipeline in terms of how many customers will buy our product. But the idea is that, or has customers paying customers preferably, but the idea is that they not, it's not just an idea on a deck. It's a real product that is out there collecting feedback from customers and so on. And so generally, we talk about invest investors, what they look at, very broadly speaking, they look at the total addressable market as in, does this business, can this produce enough revenues? Can, does it have enough customer base to actually go out and become a viable business that will grow over time? 
Second thing they'll look at is, you know, um, the team, right? What does the team look like? So for example, if you're a biotech team, you could have a CEO that is maybe not from biotech, but you know, ideally you have people who are scientists who understand the market, who understand the space. If you have a customer facing business, a B2C business, obviously hopefully you have people who know marketing, branding, who know how to scale business, who understand distribution. You as a content creator also understand it's not just having a face, you gotta have distribution, right? So what is the composition of that team that shows that you have the talent and the foresight to build a business in that space, right? And lastly, I think really, really core at the stage that we come in, which is seed, one of the earlier stages is passion, right? Does the, building a business is very hard. Actually being an entrepreneur of any kind is very difficult. And again, you can speak to this. It is sleepless nights, lots of stress, and it's a stress we all try to like, we buy into. Do you have the conviction, the passion, the tenacity, the perseverance to overcome all the hurdles? And this is a soft science. There's nothing that can say, oh, you know what? You have all these little uh, characteristics, so you're bound to succeed. This is a very soft skill that is a lot based on trust, based on gut instincts, based on you know, all these other aspects, similar to what you're saying that is this person somebody I can rely on that will not screw me over, that will, when I ask them a question, as an investor, will they respond to my email in time, in a timely fashion? Would they be transparent with me? Because I also, as an investor, want to feel that they have my back. I am not investing only my money, sometimes investing with others. Can I trust them to be transparent? Bad news is bad news, and that's okay. But I want to feel, I don't have to worry about the, the kind of shit where I'm like, somebody's not going to respond to my email. I should not have to worry about that kind of stuff. I should, I should really think about how can I offer value to them as an investor? How can I help them become successful? So that's in a nutshell what we look at. Sure. Now, speaking about a legal psychedelics industry, when that word does come fully formed and it is an industry, I understand we're looking at about 10 years out before we see legalization and there will be some different waves like incrementally, right? Like you might see it in one country and a limited capacity and then two years later. But I would say, you know, seven to 10 years out, somewhere roughly around there and feel free to correct that timeline. But what do you suppose happens between now and then? Like, I think a lot of people got into the space and there was this like funding rush, right? There was a peak. There was this, you know, huge hype cycle where like people were literally throwing together a pitch deck and buying a domain and saying they're a psychedelics company and getting funded. That's not happening anymore. You know, that was what, 2019, 2020, around then. And then the reality of the situation started to settle in and people started to see this is a long play. Like, you know, even investors that we both know are saying it might not be good news for the next year, for the next two years, but a lot of people still strongly believe that this is an industry or an ecosystem worth investing in. How do you plan your timelines? Are you guys looking at when you're you know, vetting a company and doing your due diligence, are you thinking three to five years? Are you thinking five plus years? Or what does that look like for you? Yeah, so generally I think anybody who comes into this space, first you have to understand why psychedelics is the way it is, right? There's the aspect of investing in general which I think given the rising interest rates and the recession, that's kind of caved in, right? And this is not just for psychedelics. Again, talk about tech. You know, the majority of the, the public markets have been run by what was happening in sort of big tech. That's kind of caved in. Then you have biotech as a subset of that, which is also kind of suffered. Psychedelics 
is a subset of biotech, could be considered a subset of biotech, at least from the perspective of the first tranches of you know, big money that sort of moved into the space. They're all investing in biotech. But then on the, there's also regulatory risk, which is like, it's still not legal. Now, with that said, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, things are rapidly evolving, as you already know, Dennis. So for example, Australia having legalized the medical applications or at least uh, you know, uh, approved for psychiatric treatments can only be prescribed by psychiatrists, but at least the first jurisdiction went, you know, um, was approved or went legal in July. Alberta in Canada, first province in Canada to approve psychedelics um, as again, a psychiatric treatment. I think the way to look at that is looking at, you know, what are the forces that are going to push for legalization, whether in the sort of, uh, whether in the decrim side of things or in the medical side of things, but there are forces that are converging, right? Psychiatric, psychiatry being behind a hundred years, no novel, no, no innovation in the treatments of mental disorders in over 50 to 70 years. Um, decriminalization, criminalization of minorities disproportionately, right? People also understanding these things help me. Why is alcohol, cigarettes, and pornography and gambling being pushed down our throats, but something that helps me that grows in the dirt, I cannot consume. This makes no fucking sense. So that, that also sentiment is really live and playing. Um, and then of course the failed war on drugs, right? A trillion dollars, 50 years, you know, countless lives lost, wars being raged for what? For what outcome? So there's multiple forces to understand. So the reason I bring these up is that you look at legalization of what's likely to happen, not for only from the lens of what is government thinking, but ultimately, what are what do the people want? Where is the science in terms of medical, uh, sort of internal men mental disorders and so on? I personally think it's three to five years is what I tell everybody who's investing or is coming to the space. Even if you're looking for, for a gig, there are no jobs. <laughs> Let's be honest, there is no money. Create, you know, build something that is worth having, fill a need, there's a space for everybody in this space. Prove out a track record, build trust, build a brand, and then the opportunities will emerge very organically. So three to five years is my optimistic thing. You know, we already know about, you saw this, Rick Doblin went up and says, okay, May 2024, looks like the FDA is gonna legalize MDMA for PTSD, right? May change any day, the other shoe might drop. We don't know, but all the signs are good, at least in the legalization, sorry, medical legalization aspect of things. But three to five until when those opportunities turn to real dollars and real real sort of returns, I think. All right. Put a pin in that. Let's come back to it in a few years and see how accurate this prediction is. But I think there's <laughs> you know, a lot of evidence suggesting that you're going to be right. So mutual friends of ours who run Tabula Rasa Ventures, Marek Hazan and Maria Valkova, were just over in the United Arab Emirates, which I'm sure that I'm sure that you saw. And they had the first open discussion about psychedelics with the Ministry of Health and an audience there, a sort of conference in Abu Dhabi, I believe it was. And you used to live in Saudi Arabia, as did I, which is something that we've bonded over. So this idea of a public conversation about psychedelics in the Middle East or the MENA region was something that you know would have been baffling to have heard about even a few years ago. Now it's starting to kind of make sense. Do you foresee a future, not just in the MENA region, but also like India and Bangladesh, et cetera? Do you think that these are future markets where psychedelic medicines will be embraced, albeit perhaps a little bit behind the West in Australia? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And in fact, I spoke with Maria at Denver after I was, I was like kind of like surprised and pleasantly surprised. She said, wow, holy crap. Like, you know, I've spent 14 years in Saudi Arabia and 
that region, which is a tight control and more, you know, over substances, um, alcohol included, to see psychedelics being discussed in the public domain like that was amazing. It was very surprising. I spoke with Maria, and Maria was, you know, very generous to share sort of her thoughts and opinions on this. I think her perspective, which I kind of share, is that look, these regions may ha may have been or still look at these uh, look at addiction and drug trafficking in a very harsh way it's still psychedelics is still largely being pushed by the rigorous science the rigorous science is what is proving it to be a very effective treatment for these psychological disorders these mental disorders that have plagued humanity for a long time and it's you know reached pandemic levels in itself right now so they are paying attention to the science so what's encouraging is that they're listening to what the scientists are saying. They're also interested in how do we actually uh, serve our citizens in a better way. Of course, understanding the uh, abuse potential of some of these things. And you and I know psychedelics may not be addictive chemically, but they're habitually addictive. And it's certainly something that's strange that happens to a lot of people who get too attached to the sensations or the named insights of these things. So like, I think they're cautious, but open. Second thing that I think is happening, as the West regresses is sort of going through this recession, if you look at places like India, UAE, Qatar, they are actually, you know, they're growing. And partly due to, yes, natural resources and so on, but they're open. Like the Eastern frontier are generally, they have the benefit of starting from scratch. They don't have the legacy burdens of like bad policymaking, right? And they understand, hey, this is an opportunity for us to get ahead for right or wrong, right? They recognize it. So they have to be open to new ideas. Crypto being another place that the UA is, uh, you know, sort of looking at very actively as we know this. I have my reservations about where does democracy and citizenship, right? The, the freedom to speak out and speak up, where does that fill it all in this? But that's a sort of more macro conversation, in my opinion. Yeah, it sure is. And the fact that it's being had at all is pretty remarkable from my perspective. So one of the questions I always like to ask people is, where are the blind spots in this, quote, psychedelic renaissance, as it's still quite often referred to? And I know that there are quite a few. And I think I like to be critical of a movement, critical of things, as you know, in sort of a lighthearted, ingest way. And I also strongly believe in iterating, like we are evolving. This, this is not a settled science. You know, there's still a lot of open-ended inquiry. And I think we're going to get better as an ecosystem. And I fully believe, like with people like you working in this space and myself and many of the listeners of this podcast, but still, where are some of the blind spots currently in the psychedelic renaissance? Yeah, it's it's... Certainly a question. I mean, and I'm not the expert here, but my perspective is, a, you know, stems from a couple of different areas. But I think the unifying factor, again, whether you're in the medical space or the decrim side, whether you're underground or overground, I think one of the things that we haven't really confronted and given it the attention that it deserves is around the consent and the ethical part of the medicines here. Where are the lines that a therapist or a trip setter must maintain? Psychedelics can take us to a very vulnerable, susceptible, highly suggestible space. And I don't think, you know, I think people who have a long pedigree have probably sorted this out through trial and error. But the modern sort of space where a lot of people don't have any pedigree, they might have taken 
psychedelics once or twice and now feel like they're a shaman or whatever, or people who are, you know, thinking that just administering the medicine in a clinical setting and that's it. No need to pay attention to the person's history, their set and setting, where they come from, their behavioral history, their social economic, you know, background and so on. These things haven't been worked out. It's an experiential medicine, which means the a person, what the person feels, what they're sensing at that time, where they come from, all of that really plays a strong part. And we've heard over and over again, certainly in Canada, we've heard this over and over again, the ethical and the sort of the ethical and the ethical transgressions that are taking place. And it continues to, this is only for the stuff that we, that has come to the surface that we heard about. Never mind all the stuff that does, that goes unreported. The potential to cause harm is immense. We can, it's a medicine or it's a weapon, depending on what the experience of the person is. So what are the lines that we cannot cross? What are the ethical boundaries that whether a trip sitter or a therapist must agree to? You know, is it right to hold somebody's hand as they're experiencing something? It's a human, it's a human response to go like, this person is suffering. Maybe I can offer some comfort. In what settings, in what conditions is that right? In what conditions is it not right? I don't have the answer. But I think that's a blind spot. That is, we have to figure out, again, overground, underground, everybody has to figure this out. Because, again, the potential to cause harm is huge. And it, you know, mushrooms were legal in Netherlands until an exchange student took, took too many and then jumped off a bridge. Right? This is going to happen. This could happen to us, too. So let, we have to confront the hard questions. Not easy to figure out. I don't know. Again, I don't know what the answer is. I'm not the expert here. But I think that's a, that's a blind spot that we don't talk about often. Yeah, it's super important. I like to say that we have, we've graduated from the honeymoon phase of psychedelics. There was this honeymoon phase where the blanket narrative was kind of like psychedelics are great. And while both of us are unabashed believers in their potential, as many people are, I think that narrative needs to be tempered with a little bit more of a sober, you know, cautious optimism and skepticism. And I fell into this trap years ago where I thought that psychedelics were going to save the world and everybody just needs to get dosed. And then you realize that's not necessarily true, right? Like psychedelics can also amplify very unsavory aspects of the human experience too. So like what guardrails do we put in place in order to maximize the most amount of benefit possible for the most people possible. And obviously we know that there are profound substances that are capable, highly capable of inspiring profound cathartic experiences. This can be really wonderful. But I also realized, and one of my takeaways from psychedelic science in Denver is that psychedelics mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Like even the word psychedelics is so loaded. Like if you talk to an indigenous elder from a Colorado native community, they don't really consider what they do psychedelic. You know, it's far more a sense of like ethno medicine or ancestral rite of passage. This I, and, and I've heard this expressed, you know, from people in that position saying like, we don't use the word psychedelic. So that's one I think is a blind spot is what does psychedelic actually mean and what does it encompass under its umbrella? Because once upon a time, if you had told me to list psychedelics, I would have said LSD, DMT, ayahuasca. But now, you know, it's kind of liberalized the definition and there's quite a few other antactogens and novel molecules and ketamine and MDMA, etc. So I think that's a kind of blind spot right now is sort of 
figuring out exactly what we're talking about when we talk about psychedelics and what communities and experiences and perspectives does that include, right? And I think that was part of the open wounds that we saw at the conference with the closing protests that a lot of people are probably familiar with. So it's, you know, but I also like to say that we are iterating, we're evolving, and I'd hope that we're building together and that there will be more opportunities in the future to have these dialogues. So speaking of having dialogues with very different stakeholders with different perspectives, how's the Minority Trip Report podcast going? Tell us a little bit about what you've been up to there and where do you see that going in the future? Yeah, I mean, Thanks, Des, and I really appreciate you sort of flagging it as one of your top 10 media sources that meant the world to me, so I'm really, really grateful. Uh, you have a huge platform, so obviously that's very helpful for me and I, you know, somebody I admire. Um, I'm grateful for your support. It's going really well. I have to, you know, as a content, <laughs> as a content creator, the battle is always like, or do, you know, I only have so many hours in the day. How do I do this? So I wish I was more organized and I could really offer what my, you know, promise my audience that, hey, every two weeks, I'm going to have an episode. I did not do one last week because summer has been so insane. Um, but it's been honestly received so well. I'm very grateful. I think season one, my approach was to sort of highlight as many cool stories that people that I admire. Season two, I'm taking a little different of an approach in the sense that I want to highlight or spotlight leaders in this space. And a lot of these leaders are actually not even in psychedelics in the formal term, in the formal way, as in they're doing something that is in the world of psychedelics. I think for me, bringing in more people, spotlighting their stories who are not formally in psychedelics, but have experienced the medicine, but have thought about the medicine or have transformed in other ways. To your point, we get too glued to the word psychedelic and the substance. For majority of the world, there's no such word as a psychedelic. It's a made-up term that happened in the industrial West in the 60s. It's a made-up term. But the fact that you can have transformation, that you can open up this sort of critical window in your mind and your soul, which hopefully with the right medicine, the right community can be sustained after the experience, can come from many things. It It can come from psychedelics, yes, substances, yes, but also dance, meditation, community, you know, having a child perhaps or something, something experienced something that is profound uh, or experiencing loss. So that's sort of the overall idea. My thing is how do I spotlight leaders that are, you know, uh, really showing up as good leaders, uh, imbuing the sort of uh, value set that, uh, that uh, mobilizes people, that can mobilize capital, that can mobilize communities, building and building something that is entrepreneurial, that is going to last, that they really believe in. That's sort of what I want to highlight. Psychedelics, of course, is still a part of a core part of that. But I'm thinking about transformation and, and the reason people transform and the, the obstacles that they overcome, given their backgrounds, whether they're an immigrant raised by a single parent or so on. I'm thinking about this more broadly. And it's been fantastic. The responses are amazing. Uh, I've gotten a lot of support. Um, but so far, it's been it's a you know it's a, a pa- you know a passion project. It's just all me. So my only regret is not having more time and really offering that biweekly episode. But I'm working on it. 
if anybody is listening to this, I'm working on it. I promise you that. Hey, we see you working. We see you working, Rod. We've reached our predetermined time slot here. So thanks again for coming back on the Micropreneur Podcast. We're going to have to get you back on in the future and make it a three-peat. And we can track all of these amazing developments in your world and in the psychedelic ecosystem at large. I'm a huge fan of what you do. Again, Rod Siraj of the Minority Trip Report Podcast and Mission Club. Check them out at missionclub.co. Cheers, homie. Thanks for coming back on. Thanks so much, Dennis. And I also got to plug the, the, the episode we're going to do together. You represent an underrepresented perspective, I believe, that is very close to my heart, which is how do you incorporate satire and comedy as a form of contemplation? I think it's super powerful, and we're very excited to have you on there. Cheers. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, micopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.